0: For today is going to be Genesis 3:14 to three, I mean chapter three to verse, verses 14 to 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and herds." He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Then also from Romans 8, 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit.
1: So The last few weeks that we've been going over Genesis, we talked about the fall and all the horrible things that resulted from the fall. And the question today is, did God really say, I can fix all that? I can fix the fall. There's an amazing promise that God gave back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 that gives us insight into God's much larger plan that he had for us from the very beginning. Now, it's important to note that right after the fall of man took place there in Genesis 3, when God came to both man, man and woman, and Satan to confront them, with their roles in the fall, God made a significant promise. Now, God singles out each one of them individually. He speaks to them directly as he lays out his punishment for them, because they were all involved. But he first goes to the serpent and speaks directly to Satan, and this is what I want to focus on as we begin this morning. Listen. He starts out by saying in verse 14, Because you have done this, speaking to Satan, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity enmity, excuse me, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he says, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And what's so significant there is that this is a promise for the future. One author wrote this, What God was saying to Satan was this, The whole key to my defeating you and thereby accomplishing my purpose for history will be the coming and the work of this man-child redeemer, born of woman during the course of world history. That man-child Redeemer will be my instrument to crush you and get rid of you and your forces and your kingdom rule from planet Earth once and for all. But God also said to Satan that he would bruise the heel of that child. And what God was saying is that just as a poisonous steak, if, if it sinks its fangs into a bare heel of, of someone, if that person doesn't get help in a hurry, they're going to die. And so in the same way, Satan, as a result of his work here in the world, would cause that promised child's death. Now, why would this Redeemer, why would the Savior of mankind die? Well... We know the answer, but if God is going to accomplish His purpose in world history, then He must rid the cause of the terrible predicament that man got himself into. And, then, and that predicament, of course, was human sin. The cause of the mess is human sin, which brought with it evil. And so sometime during the course of world history, God must rid Get rid of the human sin. But how is that going to happen? Well, God made it very clear that the only way to remove the effect of human sin is through death. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, we read, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, we also read, "The one who sins is the one who will die." And Paul is very clear in Romans 3:23, it says, "The wages of sin is what? It's death. So a death penalty had to be paid for the sin of mankind, But the problem is, sinful man cannot offer up an acceptable sacrifice to God himself. God through further revelation, made it very clear that his chosen Redeemer, who would be born of a woman into the world, would be a completely sinless, spotless human being. And when that Redeemer would die, he would die as a substitute for the human race. He would die to pay the penalty for man's sin. And that, of course, is why when Jesus was first pointed out by John the Baptist to his own disciples, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God... Who takes away the sin of the world. So God here in this first promise of the Redeemer in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 was saying to his enemy Satan, the whole key to my crushing you and accomplishing my purpose in history will be the coming and work of this man-child Redeemer born of woman into the world. Now, if you were Satan... And God had just told you that this would be the key to defeating you. And you wanted to prevent God from crushing you. What would you do? Well, if you think about it, you would make every effort to prevent that promised child from ever coming into the world and doing the work that God was sending him to do. And that's ultimately what all the rest of the Old Testament history is about, if you think about that. Satan, throughout the course of Old Testament history, used his fallen angels, used nations, used human beings and events as a means to try to prevent the Redeemer from coming into the world. From the get-go, he has been trying to wipe out Israel, God's chosen people. If he could just destroy Israel, for goodness sake, how many battles do we find against Israel all the way through the Old Testament? And how many times did God intervene to guard and protect and give victory to his chosen ones? And if Satan, but if Satan could have destroyed Israel, he would have prevented the birth of Jesus. But God wouldn't allow that. He would not allow that to happen. But you know, there's something else interesting in this promise to crush Satan. And it goes back once again to the question that we asked a couple weeks ago, why did God allow evil into the world? And the very simple answer is he allowed evil in order to destroy evil. How does that work? We said that if God were going to give us free will, you remember us talking about that a couple weeks ago, then there would have to be the choice available to choose disobedience and evil and sin. The same thing was true with the angels, and as we know, Satan chose disobedience and rebellion. and Then mankind chose disobedience and rebellion. And so from the very beginning, God had a plan. He knew what he was doing. God's plan included allowing evil to run its course, but in order for mankind to have an opportunity to be saved, God sent his Redeemer, his own son Jesus Christ, who would in turn crush Satan. As we know, Satan was defeated at the cross. We talk about that often. His power was broken. And soon and very soon, as the old song goes, the final battle will take place. And we know the rest of the story, right? God, uh, Christ will have the ultimate victory. Satan will be locked up forever. And evil, listen, evil will be eradicated in the new heaven and the new earth. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. Jesus had to die in order to crush once and for all the head of Satan. And that's why in the new heaven and new earth it says there will be no more death or mourning or sorrow or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There will be no more sin. There will be no evil. There will be no judgment. So, how was this accomplished? It was God the Father's plan using God the Son as a sacrificial lamb, as the Redeemer, through the power of God the Holy Spirit, to give new life. It was a joint effort by the entirety of the Trinity. The book of Romans is all about that plan. It's all about God's plan of salvation. And we could start going all the way through the book of Romans, but then we might be taking another three years. But let me highlight some things from Romans this morning. And then I want to focus a little little on the first few verses of chapter 8, which Luke read for us earlier. All through the first seven chapters of Romans, the themes are all about salvation. It starts in chapter 1, verse 16, with the gospel. Paul is not ashamed. And he preaches, and it's the power of God unto salvation. Then he starts to unpack the essence of the gospel. He talks about sin and judgment. Then he talks about the futility of trying to achieve righteousness on our own. He talks about grace and faith and uses uses Abraham as an illustration. He talks about the meaning of the cross and our union with Christ. And it's all about salvation all the way up to chapter 8. And then you come to, into chapter 8 and the theme shifts to the final summation of the glory of that salvation. It's a final summing up of what it means to be saved. And here we find the ultimate good news. And, and it's all secured for us by the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How can that even be possible that there is no condemnation for sinners? I mean, Romans 3.23 tells us very clearly that the wages of sin is death. So how can it be possible that there is now no condemnation? The answer is actually in verse 2, there in Romans 8. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ because of something that the Spirit of life has done. The Spirit of life, of course, has got to be the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who frees us from death by giving us life. And that's the first feature of a no-condemnation life. That's something that we need to be thinking about. We are living a no-condemnation life. Verse 1 starts out, therefore, there is no condemnation. The word therefore is referring back um, to the whole gospel of salvation, the whole first seven chapters of Romans. All of that gospel teaching, teaching that salvation is available, therefore means there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a summation of the gospel, and that's the good news. But but to really grasp the enormity of the good news, we have to understand the severity of the bad news. The bad news is that because of what took place way back in Genesis chapter 3, we start out by being condemned. Scripture designates every human being born into this world as a child of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 starts by saying, we were by nature born. We were by nature deserving of wrath. The Greek literally says we were children of wrath. That's harsh. But we all started out that way. That's kind of a Hebrew way of speaking. It says that we've inherited the nature of those who will be damned. Last, uh, last time we talked about how the human nature intrinsically changed into a sinful nature when Adam and Eve rebelled and they sinned. If you're a son of corruption, you simply means your nature is corrupt. If you're a child of wrath, it means that you are sentenced to judgment. All people, according to Ephesians, are born children of wrath. They are under condemnation, and it's a horrible condition to be in. So what are the features of this condition? Well, I think you might be surprised that it's more horrible than you think. First of all, we're overpowered by sin. We all come short of the glory of God. We know that verse. We've all sinned and we've all and we're all cursed. We're dominated, literally overwhelmed by overpowered by sin. That's the leading power in us. Sin is a defiling disease that cripples the soul of every human being. It degrades every person, worries every person. It steals peace and joy, replacing it with trouble, pain, and fear. This is the seed of corruption that no one can ever overcome on their own. And no human can ever cure it. But it's even worse than that. Not only are we incurably sinful and wicked, but we are controlled by Satan, who is the angel of wickedness, who is the devil himself. We are members of his kingdom. We are part of his family. Folks, there are only two families to belong to. It's God's family. We we like that. We talk about that a lot. But then there's Satan's family. There are only two families to belong to Satan's and God's. There is no in between. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, You belong to who? Your father. That's the family, right? You belong to your father, the devil. Without Christ, we are the devil's children. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, listen, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Literally in Greek, again, children of disobedience. Same phrase. That's that Hebrew, Hebrew expression again. You are all ruled by him. He's operating in all human beings who are not only corrupt in their own nature, but further corrupted by the work of Satan in them. And that's why Jesus said, and you want to carry out, you want to carry out your father's desires. Talking about Satan. And as a result of this, we are also subject then to frustration, as Paul says in Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, and we as part of creation are part of that. And what that means is that in that condition where we are overpowered by sin and dominated by Satan, we are subject to all that is bad, all that is horrible. That's the frustration of the futility of life, emptiness and bitterness and and sorrow and pain. We're born to trouble. We have no peace. We fear death. We're full of anxiety and hopelessness. And in that condition, the writer of Hebrew tells us that there is nothing to look forward to but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. All humanity has to look forward to is hell. Damned forever, according to Revelation 20, verse 14, by the second death and the lake of fire. That's the misery of all human beings, an inconvenient truth that is not spoken about a lot. And when that punishment falls, Paul tells us in Romans 3.8 that it is a just condemnation. We have broken the law of God. Galatians chapter 3 says if we break one law, we've shattered the whole law. Our condemnation is just. That's true justice. Getting what we deserve. It's like the thief on the cross when he admitted to Jesus, I, I'm, I'm getting what I deserve here, but you're not. So as a result, the sum of all that, uh, sum up all that, and we have the fact that the sinner stands as a child of wrath under the condemnation of a holy God who is offended at every sin and renders a just judgment. The inevitable end then is hell forever. Now in all honesty, you've got to say that the Bible is a very condemning book. Condemning book. In the fifth chapter of Romans, it says, In Adam, all died. It tells us that we're all inherited the sin nature of Adam. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 gives us a frightening picture of the final judgment. That's going to fall on all sinners when, when it says that, listen, quote, "...the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels." Listen, "...He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might." Not only will there be horrible physical pain in this lake of fire that, that is uh, there for, for those who do not repent, but even worse than that is the absence of God. That is true hell. They'll be, as Paul says, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. No more contact. You know, people often say that God sent His law so, so we'd have standards to live by. Well, in a sense, that's true. But then they think, well, well, if I try hard enough to live up to those standards and God sees that I'm really putting an effort in, um, then I'm going to be okay and I'll probably go to heaven, right? Folks, that's one of the greatest misunderstandings in the world. And it's an equally damning misunderstanding because as holy as the law is, and it is perfectly holy because it's a a representation of God, it's the ethics of God's nature codified, if you will, written and spelled out permanently. The law, however, can't make us holy. The law cannot deal with our sin, and the law cannot give us a way to escape condemnation. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. You see, all the law can do is to shut our mouths. It silences us when we make any claims to goodness on our own. Why? Verse 20. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. No one, not one person. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. All the law does is make us aware of, makes us conscious of our sin. It shows us our sin. It's not the path to overcome sin. It's not the path to escape the condemnation that our sin produces. It can't do that. It cannot alter our condition. It can only reveal our condition. And it can't change our condemnation. It can only enforce it. So no one by the law is going to be made right with God. That's what every other religion in the world tries to do. But it's impossible. That's why all paths don't lead to God. That's why you can't do enough good deeds to kind of outbalance your bad deeds and hope hope that maybe you're going to be accepted will never be good enough on our own. Impossible. So condemnation and only condemnation will be on those who are under the law because the law can't say, the written law can't remove condemnation. You see, God's law is perfection, and anything less than perfection is sin. And we on our own cannot attain it. It points out the impossibility of attaining it on our own. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 that salvation is not by works because it's impossible. And that's the condition of every person until the Holy Spirit comes. Until the Holy Spirit arrives. And in our text, in the darkness of this picture that we've painted here that started way back in Genesis chapter 3, our text brings amazing light. Listen, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, the principle or the power or the influence of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's amazing. That's what makes the good news of the gospel so good. There is now no condemnation. There is no eternal punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. In spite of all the violations, in spite of breaking God's law, in spite of being in a condition where condemnation would be just and righteous and holy and correct, correct and deserved, in spite of our corruption, in spite of our belonging to the kingdom of darkness and to Satan himself, in spite of being born as children of wrath, We can be in a condition now by salvation where there is no condemnation. It's interesting that the word in Greek for no is a very strong negative. The strongest negative in Greek. There's a lot of ways you can say no, apparently, in Greek, but this is the strongest. It means absolutely, unequivocally, no condemnation. Folks, that's good news. That's the gospel. As sinful as we are, there is a possibility of coming into a condition in which there is absolutely no condemnation, none at all. And what is that condition? What's that place? It's being in Christ. It's being in Christ. Verse 1, for those who are in Christ. Verse 2, through Christ Jesus. It's about union with Christ In fact, next week we're going to be talking about what it means to to have Christ in us, um, ingesting Him as the bread of life. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be in Him in a very real sense spiritually. If we go back to chapter 6 of Romans for a minute, verse 3, it says this, Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Now, it's not talking about water baptism here, although water baptism symbolizes what he's talking about. But he's using the word to mean immersed into, to be submerged in a metaphorical sense. All of us who were immersed into Christ were immersed into his death. We were therefore, he goes on to say in verse 4, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father we too may have a new life. In other words, we literally are placed into Christ in His death and into Christ in His resurrection. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. In Christ we die, in Christ we rise again. This is our union with Christ. This is what in Christ means, and that is what is being stated here in Romans 8. And the conclusion Paul is giving here in chapter 8 is that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation, none. Very literally, we have been placed beyond the reach of condemnation. That's how the chapter begins, and that's how the chapter ends. If you go to the end of the chapter, uh, what what do we read in verse 35? Listen, who shall separate us? Who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or or nakedness or danger or sword? It's a rhetorical question Paul is asking. And his conclusion is nothing, no condemnation. In verse 38, the, at the end of that chapter, for I am convinced, this is Paul writing, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Powerful verses. Paul is saying that nothing can change our condition. Nothing can alter the no-condemnation status. And this whole chapter is a long and really amazing proof of the safety and security of those who are in Christ being placed beyond the reach of condemnation. It's impossible even for Satan himself to condemn. He's only the accuser. He's he's, uh, referred to as the accuser. Paul says in verse 34, Who then is the one who condemns? And his answer from the Holy Spirit is no one. No one ever. We are beyond the reach of condemnation. This is all attributed in an amazing way to the Holy Spirit who does this for us. The reason we are beyond condemnation is because verse 2 says, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And The word law here is not the biblical sense as the Old Testament law that we're so used to using. But it's used in the sense of a principle or a dominating power. What it's, what it's saying is that the dominating power of the Spirit of life is has set you free from the dominating power of sin, which leads to death. It's just an amazingly clear, specific uh, statement on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who are in Christ are really in Christ. We are joined to Him. So how do we get into Christ? We literally have been placed into Him by the Holy Spirit who took us out of a condition of sin that leads to death and gave us life. That's why he's called the spirit of life. He's called the regenerating spirit. He's called the spirit who is life. He is called this life-giving spirit. Those are all descriptions of the Holy Spirit in, in, uh, in Scripture. It was Martin Luther who said this, for a man to be a Christian without having Christ is impossible And if he has Christ, he has at the same time all that is in Christ. What gives peace to the conscience is that by faith, our sins are no more ours but Christ. Isn't that amazing? Upon whom God hath laid them all. And that on the other hand, all Christ's righteousness is ours to whom God hath given it. Christ lays his hand upon us and we are healed. He casts his mantle upon us and we are clothed. For he is our glorious Savior, blessed forever. We are now alive in Christ. This happens by faith. We understand that. And Luther goes on to say this, The Spirit unites the soul with Christ as a spouse with her husband. Everything which which Christ has becomes a property of the believing soul. And everything which the soul has becomes a property of Christ. Christ possesses all blessings and eternal life. They are thenceforth the property of the soul. The soul has all its iniquities and sins. They become thereafter the property of Christ. He's taken them. It is then that a blessed exchange commences. Christ, who is both God and man, Christ, who has never sinned and is is and his holiness is perfect, Christ the Almighty and Eternal, taking to himself by his nuptial ring of faith all the sins of the believer. He did that at the cross. Those sins are lost and abolished in him, for no sins dwell before his infinite righteousness. And thus by faith the believer's soul is delivered from sin, is clothed with eternal righteousness, the righteousness of her bridegroom Christ. Powerful words. Powerful truth. What an amazing union. And who does that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, who removes us from the union with sin and death, which produces death, and unites us with Christ and gives us life. That's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, bringing our dead spirits back to life. That's what verse 2 means. Look at the end of that verse again. The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have been set free from the dominating principle of sin. The wages of sin is death. That's the principle he's talking about. That's the principle that we are no longer subject to. That's the law of sin and death. How are we set free? By the dominating power of the Spirit of life. That can only be referring to the Holy Spirit. Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 3.6. Listen, he has made us competent as ministers of the New Covenant, not of the letter talking about the letter of the law of Old Testament, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He goes on to say in verse 17, "Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There is freedom, freedom from what? Freedom from sin and death. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us this life. Listen to Paul's description of of this to to Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Wow, what a dark, (laughs) dark description of all we were without Christ and all who are without Christ. But, he goes on, When the kindness of love and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by, what, the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's amazing. Again, you've got the whole trinity involved. The kindness of the love of God Saving us through the washing and rebirth by the Holy Spirit and being poured out on us through Jesus Christ. How did he do that? How did he save us? Well, he states very clearly that it was not because of righteous things that we had done. He wants to make that very clear to everybody. So it wasn't by keeping the law. It wasn't by how good we are. No, he says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever spent time Thanking the Holy Spirit for what he's done. Thanking him for convicting you of sin and righteousness and judgment. Thanking him for writing all the scripture, the word of truth. Thanking him for giving you life and understanding so that you could hear the truth. Thanking him for bringing you to to life so that you could repent and believe the truth. And thanking him for delivering you out of a condition of sin and death into a condition of life. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And now our condition in life is a condition not only of being alive, but having been clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. We are now beyond the possibility of condemnation. Amazing truth. And how can the Spirit do this? He can do it because of the provision that we find in verse 3 there in Romans 8. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. The law was weakened by the flesh. In other words, it's weak not in its own self, but in the sense that flesh can't keep it. We cannot attain to that law. It doesn't have the power. The law does not have the power to make flesh keep it. But God did what the law couldn't do, and he did it through his Holy Spirit. He did it by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. And in doing that, he condemned sin in the flesh. Do you know what the law can do? The law can condemn the sinner. The law does condemn the sinner. The cross, however, condemns sin. What's the difference? The law sentences sinners to death, the cross sentences sin to death. That's the difference. Sin dies, it's no longer our master. It is no longer that dominating force in us. It, is no long, it no longer can call for just punishment and execution. How does a cross condemn sin? Because at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. Sin's requirement, which is established by God himself, is paid in full. That's what it means when it says we were identified with him in his death. When he died, all our sins were there at the cross upon him and he paid for the full, uh, the full price. And so Paul says, Romans 7, verse 4, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, God's righteous requirement, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The law can't condemn sin but the cross condemns sin for those who are in Christ. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, we read in Romans 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, a new victorious life, a life without condemnation. He goes on to say in verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, we cannot die again. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, very important phrase, in the same way, count yourselves. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what our new condition is. There is now no condemnation. Did God really say, I can fix the fall? Yeah, he did. All the way back in Genesis 3. and Immediately after the fall, his plan kicked in to fix it for us because he loved us that much. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Not only did he crush Satan's head, not only did he destroy the power of Satan, but he destroyed the power of sin and death, thereby giving us a new victorious life. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Amazing love now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree as grace flows down and covers me. Father, this morning, thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for being non-just. If you were being absolutely just with us, we'd be destroyed. We would have no hope. But your mercy and your grace overruled because of your love poured down upon us. and Father, I pray this morning as, as we contemplate our own life and even the struggles we may be having, Satan is trying, always tries to lie to us saying that you can't help but falling. You can't help falling into this temptation. I'm strong, you're weak, and you've got to do what I say. Father, we can, we can refuse all of that. Because Satan is defeated, sin is defeated, death is defeated at the cross and we have victory. We are no longer under condemnation. So Father, I pray that in each step of our life, I pray that you'd help us to walk in that newness of life, to walk in that victory in Jesus, to walk in that no condemnation life that you have given to us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.